This is an APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. And today, I'm really delighted to have as my guest, Dr. Conrad Diaz, who is a professor in the physical therapy program at Maryville University of St. Louis. Welcome, Dr. Diaz. Thank you, Dr. Jetty. It is truly an honor to speak with you today. On behalf of my co-authors, Michael Shoemaker, Christian Lefebvre, and John Hike, we really appreciate this invitation. Well, I enjoyed reading your article. The title, for our, just for our listeners, is a knowledge translation framework for optimizing physical therapy in patients with heart failure. So to begin with, tell me a little bit about what got you into this area of investigation. Well, I've been really passionate about cardiopulmonary ever since I graduated from PT school. And I have become even more passionate about heart failure when I was doing my PhD, where I chose to look at a new model of physical therapy services in home health for patients with heart failure, kind of looking at a front-loading approach to looking at people with heart failure and home health. And so my research and my passion for, for treating patients with heart failure really got me into uh, writing the clinical practice guidelines and from that, this paper. Well, you mentioned the clinical practice guidelines, which were just published in 2020. Could you talk a little bit for our listeners about how you and your colleagues uh, hope to, uh, what you hope to accomplish with the knowledge translation framework that the guidelines aren't also trying to do? Sure. So there really are um, three overarching goals of what we would like to accomplish through the use of this knowledge translation framework, which are really uh, stem from what we believe are barriers to the utilization of evidence in clinical practice. So firstly, as you are aware, there are many inconsistencies in the examination and treatment of patients with various pathologies, including heart failure. Uh, So often physical therapists have developed their own biases um, in the practice uh, that they deliver based on their years of clinical experience. And And that really makes it challenging for them to change practice. So for this reason, our hope was to provide to therapists an easy to use five-step approach to improve consistency of care provided by therapists across the continuum. Secondly, let's face it, so often it is challenging for therapists to read through 25 pages or more of dense content published in guideline papers. So for this reason, our second goal in writing this paper was really to provide a short and cogent clinical paradigm, along with figures and tables, that bridge evidence and practice in a more user-friendly way. 
our hope was that in putting the evidence into a five-step model, we can more effectively disseminate our message to clinicians, academicians, students, clinical instructors in this more user-friendly way, thereby allowing for increased adherence uh, of the evidence in practice. And finally, as we all know, there's not only variability in practice, but there also exists variability in documentation. So I hope that through the use of these five simple steps, facilities can consider a revision on the components of the EMR to reflect these five steps to increase consistency in the delivery and the documentation of evidence-based care during any episode of care along the continuum. You mentioned consistency and following evidence-based care in this area of practice. Are there good data that give us a sense of how well therapists are following guidelines such as these? Yeah, you know, we do know from previous evidence that the utilization of clinical practice guidelines in the care of complex patients is challenging. We have published reports that discuss low adherence to clinical practice guidelines because clinical practice guidelines are typically based on a single condition. And there often is this mismatch between the phenotypic characteristics of subjects studied in clinical trials and the complex multimorbid nature of patients we typically see in clinical practice. You know, when we're thinking about data, I, I'm off I, I, some of the more recent seminal work in the area of adherence to clinical practice guidelines, uh, recommendations in physical therapist practice. I cannot help but think of the work published by Joshua Zadro and colleagues. His recent articles in British Medical Journal and PTJ are quite insightful. And they report that one in four physical therapists provide interventions for patients with musculoskeletal impairments that are not recommended by clinical practice guidelines. Additionally, 45% of physical therapists provide treatments that are not well-researched. Now, even though these impairments are Uh, impairment conditions are different uh, where the article is primarily focused on musculoskeletal conditions, I think it might be useful to speculate that similar trends of reduced adherence also occurs in patients with cardiopulmonary conditions. So in acknowledging the possibility for decreased adherence to our CPG, we uh, thought it would be useful to develop this five-letter model to help clinicians think explicitly about these five steps, thereby encouraging consistency in practice uh, across the continuum of care. You, You made reference to the mismatch between the kinds of patients that have been studied that lead to the clinical practice guidelines and the kind that clinicians typically see. Uh, And you talk about it in the context of the framework that you and your colleagues developed. From my perspective, it always strikes me that it suggests that we need more pragmatic studies on which to base our clinical practice guidelines. The mismatch suggests to me that the trials are not sufficiently pragmatic. Am I looking at that in the wrong way or what's your sense of that? 
No, for sure. Um, you know, when we did, when we wrote the heart failure pack, uh, clinical practice guideline, we reviewed and utilized uh, a total of 127 systematic reviews and meta-analyses to develop the action statements documented within the CPG. Now, if you look at the trials included in these review papers, they primarily involved patients in the stable state of their heart failure. In other words, most of the evidence reveals the safety and the efficacy of exercise-based interventions in patients living with heart failure who received these interventions during the stable phase of their disease process. As physical therapists, we are less involved in treating patients in the stable phase of their disease. Rather, we're primarily treating patients in the decompensated state of their disease in acute care or immediately after decompensation in skilled nursing care uh, or in acute rehab or in home health. So there really certainly is a paucity, as you mentioned, of research that specifically looks at interventions for patients in these settings. And therefore, it is very challenging for therapists to apply and integrate the current evidence to the patient that they're treating at the bedside. So your suggestion on pragmatic trials really uh, represents patients we may more currently see in clinical practice. And I really think that is, is truly warranted. Moreover, as I think about your suggestion for pragmatic studies, it really speaks to the importance of engaging in effectiveness research more than just efficacy research. One of the articles that I really enjoyed reading recently was the article published by Gustafson and colleagues in PTJ, where they present the results of a feasibility study on the use of uh, high intensity functional resistance training, they term it the I Stronger program in skilled nursing care. Uh, and they were really able to show this high intensity resistance training can re was able to be shown to be safe, feasible, and there were preliminary signals of effectiveness um, for really what works in patients in post-acute care. As I think about something similar like this in heart failure, there is so much of, uh, of research that has looked at high-intensity interval training in patients with heart failure. But all of these trials and meta-analyses have really looked at this intervention, high-intensity interval training, in people with stable heart failure. So I think there really is an opportunity for us to do kind of a pragmatic trial on the use of these interventions um, in post-acute care and in other settings and in other patients that we more commonly treat. Well, let's talk a little bit about your framework. We've made reference to it. I did like the fact that it's very simple in how you've presented it. It's a five-step component framework. And for our listeners who haven't read the article, it deals with assessment, behavior modification, cardiorespiratory fitness testing, dosing, and, and education. That's so correct. let's talk a little bit about some of those. You, you write quite a bit about this concept of assessing clinical stability. Can you give listeners an example of that kind of assessment and why that's so important in the framework? 
Sure. Yeah, so the first component of the model really relates to the assessment of stability. Uh, and in this first step of the model, we advocate for this assessment of stability, both at rest and during activity. And whether we're assessing stability at rest or with activity, we suggest for assessing stability from two broad perspectives, what we refer to as absolute stability and relative stability. Absolute stability really involves appreciation of the absolute indicators of decompensation. For example, you walk into somebody's house, you walk into somebody's room, and you take their resting heart rate, and you know their resting heart rate should be between 60 and 100 beats per minute, and if it's 180 bits, beats per minute, they're absolutely unstable. You walk into somebody's room, you take their blood pressure, you know it should be around 120 over 80. If it's 180 over 100, they're absolutely unstable. I think as clinicians, we do a pretty good job of assessing absolute stability. On the other hand, relative stability is something we can try to be more cognizant of. And it considers where the, the patient is stable on a temporal trajectory, um, you know, kind of, in other words, relative stability considers alterations that occur on a day-to-day -day basis or on a visit-to-visit -visit basis relative to the patient's baseline stability. So as an example, if every day I walk into the patient's house or I walk into the patient's room and I notice that his or her resting heart rate is 60 beats per minute, and then one day it is 90 beats per minute, then it would be prudent for me to appreciate that the patient is becoming relatively unstable. Even though from an absolute perspective, the heart rate is in the normal range of 60 to 100 beats per minute, it doesn't really demonstrate absolute instability, but more importantly, it may indicate relative instability instability, where the patient is becoming relatively unstable compared to baseline. Now, if this change in her clinical signs, like changes in weight, changes in edema, changes in heart sounds, changes in lung sounds, and more, all of these signs and symptoms together inform the clinician that the patient is becoming relatively unstable over time and will warrant the need for for further investigation, contact with the physician, or even the possibility of sending the patient to the emergency department. Is, is there good empirical evidence of the importance of relative clinical stability versus absolute? That's a really good question. And um, as, I th as I think about an answer to your question, what I can say is that what we do have is evidence related to the sensitivity and specificity and predictive ability of different signs and symptoms that are observed in patients presenting with decompensated heart failure. So in our manuscript, we provide a table that describes the different signs and symptoms we need to be cognizant of in recognizing decompensation, along with the specificity or odds ratios for each of these signs. Our hope is that clinicians find this table useful in indicating the evidence 
on the accuracy or predictive ability of these different signs and symptoms in determining worsening heart failure. So to give you an example, if I'm a home health therapist or a physical therapist in a nursing home, and I have a patient who reports to me that I, that, you know, I had a bad night, I was unable to sleep due to sudden episodes of shortness of breath, what we call paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, then with 80% specificity or with 80% certainty, we can determine that that patient is becoming relatively unstable today compared to the last visit. Additionally, if the patient gains weight, develops edema, changes their heart sounds, changes their lung sounds, then the recognition of each of these signs and symptoms, along with their specificities, paints a picture of instability that helps the clinician objectively evaluate reduced stability. So our hope is that the table we provide to clinicians in the manuscript really is a resource that informs them on how to assess each sign, as well as the specificity or predictive ability, odds ratios, relative risk for each sign in determining reduced stability. From an intervention perspective, you talk about behavior modification as being important. Is there a specific theoretical underpinning for behavior modification or are you agnostic from that perspective? Sure. Um, really, the, the overarching goal of behavior modification is really to assess and sub subsequently alter the patient's perceptions regarding the need and the desire to change their behavior by promoting greater self-efficacy and commitment towards improved health. You know, as movement specialists in the heart failure clinical practice guideline, we purposefully advocate for promoting a culture of physical activity and encouraging self-management in individuals with heart failure. As you may anticipate, both of these factors involve behavior modification. We believe that successful behavior modification requires consideration of the individual's readiness for behavior change, as well as incorporating evidence-based strategies to facilitate behavior change. So in our paper, we highlight the use of three important tools to promote behavior modification. The five A's, which are the ask, advise, assess, assist, arrange tool. The five R's, which are the relevance, risks, roadblocks, rewards, and repetition. That's another tool. And motivational interviewing. You know, so truly behavior modification is something we believe is extremely important to consider during any episode of care. You know, as a clinician, I have come to appreciate the importance of asking the why question. Uh, why did you have a heart attack? Or why did you get readmitted back to the hospital in less than 30 days because of your heart failure? Once we ask the why question, our approach to intervention markedly changes from merely treating the patient for their impairments, but 
but employing interventions that go beyond wherein we ask the patient, where we assist the patient in behavior modification to reduce risk factors and work on preventative measures to maximize outcomes. Makes sense. Another element in your framework is the assessment of baseline cardiorespiratory fitness. And you make the case that it must be measured routinely in clinical practice to guide uh, management and dosing specifically. Makes perfect sense to me. What shocked me in reading that was, isn't that routinely done in practice today? I mean, it just seems so obvious that that has to be a critical element of practice, but you felt the need for that to be in the framework. Could you talk about that a bit? Absolutely. Yes, they are critical components, but I do believe there are some inconsistencies uh, in the examination of cardiorespiratory fitness, as well as inconsistencies in the appropriate dosage of interventions often prescribed for patients with heart failure, where we're often underdosing the interventions. So our hope was that by documenting these two elements in the model, clinicians will more purposefully consider each of these factors when managing their patients with heart failure. So in regards to cardiopulmonary fitness testing, we believe its assessment serves two broad purposes. Number one, it helps diagnose movement dysfunction by understanding reduced exercise capacity or reduced endurance. And secondly, it assists therapists in effectively dosing exercise intervention. You know, a recent statement from the American Heart Association makes a compelling case for the importance of including cardiorespiratory fitness as a clinical vital sign in patient care. When we presented, when we, uh, what we have presented in our manuscript is a table that provides the reader with an overview of common exercise tests that can be commonly used in patients with heart failure across a wide range of physical abilities and clinical settings. So in the table, we have organized these tests for use in patients ranging from low levels of function to higher levels of function. So we really advocate that baseline cardiopulmonary fitness be measured routinely in clinical practice because it does provide a wealth of information that guides patient management. I think- Additionally, go ahead, I'm sorry. Did you have another question? No, I was just going to comment that I think that is the unique feature of it, the linking of the cardiorespiratory assessment to dosing of the intervention. I think that's the missing piece frequently. Absolutely. And, you know, and it, and again, it's not only just from an absolute perspective, but also from a relative perspective. So if I do six minutes of walking on the first day, and I do it on the second day and the third day, what are the patient's relative responses to the same absolute work. And once we understand the relative responses to absolute work, we can better appreciate how the patient is is tolerating the exercise to then alter the dose of intervention from one visit to the next. I hear very often about underdosing 
exercise intervention in other areas of practice as well. So I was pleased to see you emphasize that. Well, Dr. Diaz, I want to thank you for not only publishing the article, but for taking the time to talk about it with me today. I want to encourage our listeners to take a look at the, uh, the article. It's a very clinically relevant, very practical framework. And I think that's the beauty of it. And you've explained it so well today of what you were trying to do and why you were trying to take such a practical approach. And I think you were very successful in, in doing so. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Jetty. It was really my pleasure. Thanks so much. This is an APTA podcast.